0: Bibles to James chapter 4. We're going to pick up at verse 13 eventually. One of the things that I am constantly impressed by in the Bible as I continue reading it and studying it and comparing parts of the Bible to other parts of the Bible, one of the things that I'm most impressed by is the Bible's balance. The Bible balances itself. And so much error happens when folks emphasize one part or portion of the Bible over the balanced parts of the Bible, and so they get it all out of balance, and they emphasize one idea or one theological notion. For instance, we have been studying the book of Ezekiel on Wednesday nights here at GCA, And we are in a portion of the book of Ezekiel that for the last several weeks has just been judgment, judgment, judgment. The Wednesday night messages are not feel-good messages. You walk out with this sense of God's foreboding wrath. But the Bible also talks, especially John's writing, about the love of God. And we have to recognize the sections of the Bible that are about the love and the mercy of God as much as the judgment and the holiness of God. There's several imperatives in the book of James. There's a lot of do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. But in the doing, we can't forget that there is a genuine emotion that goes with our love of God and our recognition that he has saved us, chosen us before the foundation of the world. Those concepts that he has chosen and elected people before the foundation of the world, those are deep theological concepts. Paul writes about those things, but Paul also says things as simple as if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And so there's a simplicity to the gospel message as well as a complexity and there's balance. The Bible is constantly balancing itself. And sometimes when we just have an hour on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, we kind of get into the weeds in any one particular idea, one particular notion, and we just kind of plant ourselves there and it may go on for several weeks. I just want to make sure that we always understand that the Bible constantly balances itself. Because the God that we serve is just and righteous. And holy, and the God we serve has a wrath and a fury and an anger. And the God we serve is love. And the God we serve is gracious. And the God we serve is long-suffering. All of those qualities are the qualities of God. I have often said that there is no human emotion that God does not instill in us or give us if there was anything that he did not first conceive of then humans wouldn't be able to do it there's this broadness to God there's this grandness to God God is in every aspect of human life whether that's casting lots into laps or whether that's sparrows falling from the sky or whether that's kings being announced a uh, hundreds of years in advance, or whether that's God raising up nations and bringing down nations. It's all God who is in charge of all of that. We see it in the Bible again. We see this concept of God being in absolute control of absolutely everything. Well, I think that's kind of what James is about to get at. That's the reason I bring all this up is because behind what he's about to say is this overwhelming concept of the all-encompassing reality and control of God. Because, yes, contextually, he's about to unload on the rich, on the wealthy, on those that persecute the poor. He's about to really lay into them. And I think we could say contextually that when he says we're going to go to a city and we're going to do such and such and we're going to get wealth and we're going to do all that, that maybe he is talking specifically to the well-to-do and the rich and saying, remember that it's God that's in control of these things. But the underlying concept of what James is about to say, and I just don't want you to miss it, is that no matter what it is, I don't care what it is, If you think you're about to do it, if you're making a plan, if you have it in your mind that you're going to do thus and so, James says, always recognize it has to be by God's will. And if God is not willing, you're not going to do it. You might think, I'm definitely going to go somewhere, and I'm going to set up shop there, and I'm going to make wealth, and I'm going to have a family, and I'm going to get that car, and I'm going to do... He's about to say, you don't even know if you'll be here tomorrow. Your life is a vapor. So you need to recognize that if you wake up tomorrow and you breathe and you know your name, then that's God. If you go to work tomorrow and make some money, that's God. If you have the ability to do long algebra or all you can do is hammer a nail... Either way, that's God. If you're experiencing the wrath, that's God. If you're experiencing the love, that's God. If you're having the obedient reaction to the good works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, okay, that's God. If you're having the emotion of love and compassion and And long-suffering and generosity and grace toward other people, that's God. It's all involved in the reality of a sovereign God. Every time I say God is sovereign, I feel like I need to define it because I'm afraid that somebody might be saying a simplified version of sovereign. They're simply saying, well, God's in his heaven on his throne. He's in charge in heaven. But that's not what sovereignty is. I heard this week. A preacher who said, in God's sovereignty, he gave men free will. Which, of course, means, (laughs) I know, which means God's not really sovereign because if people don't have to do what he sovereignly says they have to do, then he's not in charge. He's not sovereign. I'm talking about a God who is so sovereign that whatever it is in your life, whatever it is your hand finds to do, Whatever it is you're capable of thinking, whatever perception you have of the Bible, of the Word of God, of who God is, whatever experience you're going through at this moment, how many dollars you have, how many meals you had today, that's all God. He's in charge of all that. My eyes are going, I need glasses. Well, that's God. God decided that's the way it was going to be. That's what I was going to live with. I have no hair. God and I are at odds about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't talk. <laughs> no, it's all God. It's all God. When I say sovereign, I mean somebody who is intimately involved in and in charge of everything that happens in his universe because he is the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality. And there's nothing that happens in his universe that he's not intimately involved in, aware of, and in charge of. Otherwise, he's a poor planner. I mean, we know enough that if we're going to build a house, we count the cost, we figure out the blueprint... How much lumber is that going to take? How many nails? How many men? We make a plan because we don't just launch into things without having a plan. Well, that's God. God has a plan. That's why he created, what's that word? Everything. He created it all for his glory, for his purposes, so that the end result will redound to his glory and his son will have a name above every name and all knees are going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the ultimate plan. That's what human life is about. Humans exist for the glory of God. And everything that happens in the life of those humans, those creatures that belong to that sovereign God, everything that occurs to them, everything that happens to them, everything that they're capable of thinking from the moment they take their first breath till the moment they take their last is all in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God. That's what the Bible declares. Or you have to give me an example of something that God's not in charge of. Go ahead. It's hard, isn't it? You can't think of anything that God's not in charge of. From planets spinning around planets, to universes revolving around universes, to atomic particles revolving around atoms and little one-celled organisms with perfect balance. God is constantly, perfectly creating his universe from the biggest to the smallest. And he's involved in all of it. And you're gonna be on this planet for a few years. If you're fortunate, you'll get your 10 score and score and more scores. If you're fortunate, you'll get your three-score and ten. Some people are getting their ten score just to prove they can. But if you're here for a hundred years, if you're here for an afternoon, that's God's plan. It's all in his hand. So in everything, James is about to say, in all things, whatever it is you're planning to do, you ought to have that mindset. You ought to have that realization. You ought to be willing to say, if God wills, I will do thus and so. Because if God doesn't will, it's not going to succeed, or you're just not going to do it. People ask me, they say, how do I know that I'm in the will of God? Usually they ask that when things are going wrong. How do I know that I'm in the will of God? And my answer is always, how can you prove you're not? It's a sovereign God. Are you the one who's so strong, who's so mighty, who's so independent that you have managed to free yourself from the will of God? No, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you're doing, whatever you have, whatever you know, that's the will of God for you at this point in your life. That's why you have it. If he willed something else for you, you'd be having something else. You'd be doing something else. You'd be knowing something else because that would be God's will for you. You can't get out of the will of God because he's a sovereign God. That's my point. I'm just defining sovereignty up here and in god's infinite sovereignty he is infinitely in balance and the more you get to know of him the more you recognize the breadth and the wisdom of god and the more willing you are to bow yourself before both the love and the justice you will both fear and love god you'll both recognize his wisdom and you'll call him father Because he's truly, genuinely, all and in all. He's truly, genuinely, everything you need in this life. And so, whatever you're going to do, you need to recognize him in the doing. Yes, ma'am.
1: It's difficult to see it any other way because I actually had this conversation with my teacher a couple of weeks ago, about one or two weeks ago. There's a movie out now called The Shack. And she told me, she said, I cried. It was a really sad movie. It was about God just watching all of his children, the good and the bad, hurt one another, and just you end up feeling so sorry for God at the end of it. And that's what makes you cry, is God finally telling this one person who's going through the struggles that I'm suffering too because I don't want to see my children be like this. So the, the sadness in it is feeling sorry for God and, and, and pitying God that he gave them that choice, and he's just watching his poor children
0: and sadly, that's the way the world thinks about God. Yeah,
1: well, it's kind of hard to they don't
0: think biblically about God.
1: It's hard to worship that kind of God. It is more of kind of a pitiable
0: yeah. creation. Why would you worship such a God? Yeah, you'd feel bad for a God like that. He's, he's dependent on you. Right. So, yes, I agree with you completely. In fact, as I look at what people are saying on Facebook, on social media, or in preaching, or on TV... I am really genuinely astounded at the number of people who claim that they believe in God and they believe in the Bible. They just don't bother to read what it says because what it says is plain and clear. Right?
1: How can you believe it if you don't know what it says?
0: Yeah, but you see people all the time claim to believe it and then say stuff that you go, that ain't right. That's not in the Bible. Why are you making that up? The shack is a good example. So back to the original thought. Whatever you decide to do in your life, whatever you plan to do, you need to recognize that it's in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God. We are in James 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit in other words, making plans. I'm making plans. I know what I'm going to do. I'm a self-made man. I'm going to go to such and such a place. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to build myself a big home, and I've got plans for me. Verse 14 says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. So here are people making plans for what their life is going to be like tomorrow, but in reality, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. Everybody in this room can think of an example of that, where you got up one day, and you thought it was just another day, and before the day was out, something happened you didn't see coming. Something happened you didn't expect. By the end of the day, you or a loved one is either in a hospital or a morgue. You didn't see it coming. Or you think, uh, i got to go see the doctor. I'm not feeling well. And he yanks out the word cancer. You go and you see your best friend. And you find out your best friend doesn't like you much anymore. I didn't see that when I woke up. What's that all about? Yeah, that's just standard reality that you do not know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. So if you don't know what your life is going to be like, how in the world can you make plans for your life that you're not in control of? Instead, here's what you ought to do. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Notice the phrase, if the Lord wills, We shall live. You don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. You don't even know if you're going to see dinner time. You don't know what might happen. I hear things all the time. All the time. Folks who saw their child maybe get in a car and drive away. Goodbye. See you later. They never see that child again. You know the examples. People who got on an airplane not knowing that that airplane was going to end up in the Pacific somewhere. People who got up in the morning thinking it was just another day and by the end of the day they had lost somebody they love. This is just the reality of life. And so James is very clear to say we ought to say when we make our plans, if the Lord wills and I live, if I'm even alive tomorrow And if the Lord is willing for me to do this, then I intend to do this and that. But if the Lord doesn't will, you're not doing this or that. If the Lord doesn't will, you're not alive. And what good does it do you to have all these grand plans if tomorrow afternoon you're going to be standing before the judge of the universe and all you've got is your plan? Instead, you need to recognize him in his sovereignty in everything. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So he's saying if you take on that self-made man attitude, if you take on the attitude of this is what I'm gonna do, this is where I'm gonna go, this is how much money I'm gonna make, this is what I'm gonna. If you don't recognize God as the basis of everything that you're planning to do, you don't recognize God's willingness for you to do those things, if you don't recognize God in all your plans, you're just boasting about yourself. And you got nothing. You've got nothing intrinsically that is of such quality that you ought to be boasting within yourself that you have power, that you have the ability, that you have the wherewithal to go build and construct your life. God has that power, not you. So you should not boast about it. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, recognizing that God is absolutely sovereign, recognizing that God is in charge of everything, recognizing that you can only do what God wills that you do. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. So the right thing to do is to recognize God's control of everything. But if you start boasting or you start self-advancing or you think it's all up to you and you get that self-made madness thing going, he says, not only is that boasting sin, but now that I've told you how you ought to be and you're aware of that, if you're any other way, that's sin for you. Now this also has to do with Christian freedom, I talk a lot about Christian freedom because we are absolutely free in Christ, free from the law, oh, happy condition. And there are things that the Bible just doesn't address. And so folk will ask, well, what about this? Is this a sin? Is that a sin? And the answer is not as easy as yes or no. The answer is, what do you think about it? The example that I give frequently is a friend of mine years ago, who used to hustle pool and then one day he realized that that was not a good way to make a living or cheat his friends and so he could not play pool in his own conscience he could not play pool for him to play pool once his conscience was aware of that would have been sin for him so he could not play pool. The essence of legalism would be if he decided that his inability to play pool is now automatically everybody's inability to play pool. He doesn't have the right to say my conviction has to be everybody's conviction. But he's absolutely right in saying my conviction is my conviction. And if he had gone against his own conviction, that would have been sin for him. Because James says, if you know to do the right, but you don't do it, well, then that becomes sin for you. So be careful as you grow in your knowledge of God because you're going to become more and more aware of what is right. And then what is right is what you need to do or else it's sin for you. Now, within the larger topic of Christian freedom... I also have to point out over and over again that genuine Christian freedom doesn't just mean that you can allow whatever you want to allow. Genuine Christian freedom includes the ability to say no to things. Christian freedom does not mean that I now just have to allow everything because I'm not under bondage. And since I'm not under bondage, I allow everything. Genuine Christian freedom includes the ability and the right to say no to things you didn't used to be able to say no to. I used to be entrapped by my habits. I used to be controlled by my temper. I used to be completely enwrapped with my ego. And I could not say no to those things. I could not deny myself the things that I wanted. Because I was completely controlled by my fleshly desire, just like the world, just like the prince of the power of the air. Whatever desire I had, I satiated it. Now, because I have the spirit of God inside me, because I have the son of God pleading my case for me before God's throne, because I have an advocate with the father, now I'm able to say no to those things that used to control me. I can now say no to the things that I know are not good for me. So Christian freedom is not only knowing to do the good and then being able to do it. Christian freedom is the ability to say no to the things you didn't used to be able to say no to. All of that is involved in Christian freedom. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him it's a sin it's not a sin for everybody it's a sin for him because he knows better and he does it anyway so when we're talking about defining sin what is sin and what isn't there are a few things in the bible that very clearly are called sin the obvious ones murder or adultery or bearing false witness these kinds of things these are sins older new testament they're just bad just don't do them Don't be drunk with wine. Those are imperatives in the Bible. Just don't do that. But then somebody will say, what about smoking? Is smoking a sin? I say, well, the Bible doesn't address it. Here's what I know about smoking. It's stupid. It's not a good idea. I think I could make the argument that you're body is the temple of the Lord and you're destroying the temple of the Lord through your smoking so from that aspect I think I could say it's it's a bad idea and might even be sin but then I'd be accusing myself because of my sugar addiction and I have the temple of the Lord I'm trying to care for so so we've got to be careful about the things that we identify as sin and the things that we identify as just bad ideas some things simply are not rebellion against God They're just not wise. They're just not smart. They're just not good for you. Which is why Paul says that everything is allowable to him, but not everything is expedient. Not everything is a good idea. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, at the beginning of what we call chapter 5, James is going to start talking about the rich. And in order to understand who he's talking about, we kind of need to back up a little bit. Go back to chapter 2 for a moment of James. This is another one of those examples in the book of James where he seems to have said something and then thought about it again later in the letter and brings it up again. We've seen him do it a couple of times where he's made his statement And then come back, return to that topic again, because, oh yeah, I've got more to say about that. Back in chapter 2, he was talking about the sin of partiality. My brethren, starting at verse 1, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes... And you say, you sit here in a good place? And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Therefore, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich... Check this statement. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Now go to chapter 5, which starts, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Let me state it again. Balance. I keep talking about balance. God made... Solomon, the richest man in the Middle East. God made David phenomenally wealthy. Abraham had so much wealth that he had his own standing army with which he attacked the kings of the plains. So wealth in and of itself is not the problem. Having wealth, having some money is not the problem. If we were just going to think about wealth in the world today... Everybody in this room would be considered wealthy by the standard of the whole world because there are so many people who are just impoverished who have far less than you have. You're among the upper percentile in the world where wealth is concerned. So when you hear the denunciations of the rich here, don't start thinking, yeah, it's those rich guys, it's the Bill Gates, get him. Now it's the people the people James is talking about are the people who because of being well to do oppress poor people. And that's the sin of it. It's not just that they're rich, it's that they've used their riches as a platform from which they can keep other people down. The man. Pardon me? The man. The man is keeping me down. That's right. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now listen to him describe these riches. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. When is that going to happen? Right now, the wealthy, the rich of this world, seem to be fine. So James identifies when it's going to happen. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. He's going to say in a minute to the poor, again, the balance, he's going to say, don't complain, don't quarrel against each other because the coming of the Lord is at hand. So now he's talking eschatologically. He's talking about the fact that when Christ returns, God is going to judge everybody and he's going to pay the rich back for the wealth that they had and the way that they oppressed the poor and that he's going to raise the poor up, that there's going to be balance again, that God is going to make everything work out justly in the end at his return. And so the admonition to the poor is be patient. It's going to all be worked out by Christ, but be patient. To the rich, the admonition is, you're storing up your riches and you're oppressing the poor, but the time is coming when your gold and your silver are going to testify against you and consume you like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborer who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. Now this is another one of those places where James is being influenced by the law. He's he's quoting directly from the law there. Somebody look up Leviticus 19:13. Tom's going to do that. Todd, you're right up here in front. Can you look up Deuteronomy 24:15? The law is going to say that if somebody works for you, that at the end of the day you have to pay them So James is just echoing again what he's already heard from the law, bringing it into the context of the rich and the poor, and showing how the rich have oppressed the poor. And his examples are things like, you haven't paid the laborers who have mowed your fields. That payment's been withheld, and that cries out against you because of that injustice. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. We'll talk about that in a moment. Leviticus 19.13 says,
2: You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning.
0: And Deuteronomy 24.15 says,
2: Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be a sin to
0: you. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it becomes a sin too. It's exactly what James is saying here. That if you don't pay the laborers and you withhold what is theirs, you've been told to pay them by the end of the day. And if they go and cry to the Lord, then their crying is going to reach the very Lord of Sabaoth. That's the Lord of hosts, the God who is sovereign in heaven the one who is in charge of everything. That's why I began this morning by talking about the sovereignty of God, that it is all-inclusive because here poor people who have been cheated can cry out not just to God, not just to the Lord of mercy, but to the God who is sovereignly in charge of everything. That's what the Lord Sabaoth means, the Lord of hosts the God of everything, the sovereign one, who, in his sovereignty, while he's keeping planets spinning, while he's keeping universes going, while he's keeping people living and dying, while he's feeding baby lions and making goats stand on the side of mountains, while he's busy keeping everything going, he inclines his ear to a poor person who's been cheated. That's absolute sovereignty. That's somebody who can hear Even in the midst of all that, I had a tough time for a while. I had a tough time imagining that the God of heaven, when I got to know him as the sovereign God, I had a hard time imagining that he heard my prayers. Sometimes I felt like I was just talking to the ceiling. And I would think, does he hear me? Does he know? Does he care? Because look, I'm going through this. Does he even hear me, or even intellectually? It didn't even have to be a bad time. I would just go through the intellectual exercise of, does he, does he hear me? Does he know? Well, according to James here, he hears every outcry of every poor person who has ever been cheated and cried out to him. Why? Because he's Lord of Sabaoth. That's why. Because he's absolutely sovereign. Because he's intimately involved in every aspect of his universe. Because he's omnipresent everywhere at once. He can be there to hear your prayer. He can be there to be concerned about your concern. At the exact same time that he's keeping universes spinning. Keeping atoms revolving. Keeping baby lions fed. He can do all that and hear you. And answer you. And be concerned for you. So notice how James puts it. He doesn't just say that the poor person is going to be heard because he cried to God generally, but to God specifically, the sovereign God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Behold, the pay of the laborer who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the lord of sabaoth you have lived luxuriously the particular greek word there and steve can correct me if i'm wrong but the particular greek word there of self-indulgence is one of the ways it can be interpreted this is the only place in the new testament where you find it james yanks out this word that has to do with living sumptuously you who have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure, you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Okay, another interesting bit of Hebrew history here. Everybody knows the idea. Everybody he's writing to understands the idea of fatting up an animal for the slaughter. Which is why when you hear about the, uh, the wayward son who finally returns to his father... The father says, kill the fatted calf. Okay, so James takes a hold of that and rather sarcastically says, what you're doing in the way you're living sumptuously is that you're fattening up your heart for the slaughter. That when God returns and levels the playing field with everybody and judges those who have pressed other people and raises up the poor, when he does that, your riches are going to testify against you, the withheld wages are going to testify against you, and your heart is going to be slaughtered, and in everything you're doing, you're just fattening up your heart for the kill. Harsh, huh? You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, He does not resist you. In order to understand that, I think we have to think about what James said earlier in the letter, which is why we read a bit of chapter two. He talks about the fact that it's the rich that drag you into court. It's the rich that drag the poor into court, and there they would probably be charged and and could be killed. That's probably the way that James is saying you've condemned them by dragging them into court, you've put them to death. But the person you've done that to is a righteous man. He does not resist you. You just do it because of the hardness, the coldness of your heart. But then at chapter 7, again he changes the nomenclature that he uses in the audience he's addressing. He began the letter by addressing the brethren. In chapter 3 and 4, he gets into talking about you adulteresses at the beginning of chapter 5, you rich, and then starting at verse 7, he says, brethren again. Now he's talking to those that are his brethren. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. James sees much more in the coming of the Lord than just that we're going to be snatched away and taken off to heaven. We who are the church... We Gentile believers who have been adopted into the family, we anticipate the coming of the Lord because we're looking forward to the rapture. We're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're looking forward to being taken off this planet and being in heaven with our Savior. But James has that Hebrew mindset. Remember that. He has that very Old Testament Jewish mindset He sees the coming of the Lord as the reestablishment of the kingdom that has been promised. And part of what Christ is going to do in establishing the kingdom is that he's going to rule with a rod of iron, and he's going to judge the enemies of Israel, and he's going to create equity within Israel. It's all going to come out okay when the Lord returns. So here he says in the context of I know the rich are oppressing the poor he says be patient you that are poor because when Christ comes he's then going to judge the rich who have oppressed you and he's going to raise you up and he's going to set everything aright. He's going to make everything correct the way it's supposed to be. Be patient therefore brethren until the coming of the Lord. Then he gives an example, behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. Okay, so that's his little parable example. He says the farmer, as soon as he plants a seed, doesn't just stand there going, okay, we're going to eat today. He realizes he has to be patient. He put the seed in the ground and eventually if it gets the rains, the early rains and the late rains, then there's going to be a harvest and then there's going to be food. That takes patience. So James uses that as an example. Be patient, my brethren, until Jesus comes and you see the fruit of your faith finally produced. Verse 8, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts as opposed to fattening up your hearts for the slaughter. You instead strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I guess it's worth pointing out that James seemed to have the same anticipation that Paul did, which is that Jesus would be right back. Once Jesus sailed off into the blue, they expected that he would be right back, he would establish the kingdom, he would set up everything that the prophets had all prophesied, and that he was going to do it within their lifetime. Every generation of the church since paul and james has hoped that christ would be back in their time in their generation in their lifetime as the years go by i'm still hoping and anticipating that christ is going to come back in my lifetime if he doesn't then i'm looking forward to bursting up out of my grave either way it's going to be a pretty exciting afternoon So James seemed to anticipate that Christ would be right back because he says the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge, that's Christ, is standing right at the door. Interesting again that James represents Christ as the judge in this context. The balance would be Christ is altogether lovely. Christ is the Redeemer, Christ is the Savior, but Christ is also the Judge. And if you don't recognize all of that, then you come away with a truncated concept of who Christ is. You have to recognize him for everything that he is, not just Lord of glory, but also the shepherd who picks up sheep on his shoulders and brings them back into the fold. Meek and mild, tender Jesus, who is also coming back with a rod of iron and going to fill the Megiddo plain with blood that reaches the bridles of the horse. Those are all concepts of Jesus. And you need the balance to understand who he is. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Okay, he's going to now example what patience is according to what they can already find in their scripture within what we would call the Old Testament He now mentions a couple of the prophets and how difficult it had to be for them. They predicted things. They heard right from God. They knew what was going to happen. They knew what they were saying was correct. Jeremiah, for instance, preached for 30 some odd years, never had a single convert, was constantly at war with everybody, but he was right. That required patience. We just saw out of Ezekiel this week how Ezekiel said exactly what God said to say and then he goes back to God and says, they all think I'm talking Proverbs. They don't get it. They think I'm making stuff up. That requires patience. So James says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those Blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings with Job. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. There's the balance again. It keeps showing up. What do we know about Job? Job lost everything. Job lost all his children in one day. Job lost all his cattle, he lost his fields, he lost his health. He ended up sitting on an ash heap, covered in boils, using a piece of pottery to cut through the boils to let the pus run out. That's where we find Job. Well, if you were to look at Job at that moment, you'd say, well, your God is kind of cruel. Your God's kind of heartless. And God indeed was in charge of everything that happened to Job. He took personal responsibility for everything he allowed Satan to do. You can do this, but not that. You can do this, but not that. Straight down the line. God in his sovereignty was in control of everything Job went through. What does James take away from it? He says, remember how God restored Job. Remember how God was also merciful and compassionate. So God is not only the person in charge of Job's downfall, God is in charge of the mercy and compassion and the restoration of Job. All of that is God. I mentioned Jeremiah earlier. Jeremiah is told that he is going to tear down and root up. He's going to tear things apart. That's what he's told. Well, that would give you the impression that God was just really mad at Israel and going to use Jeremiah as a prophet to just tear down and root up and destroy things. But then God adds, and you're going to build, and you're going to plant. Oh, well, that's also God, who is also going to restore Israel, who is also going to bring Israel to its culmination in kingdom, which he promised. All of that is the balance of God. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the outcome of of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful but above all my brethren and I have to admit I don't know where this comes from it's another imperative it's almost like James was writing and went oh yeah and another thing yeah yeah. Yeah, just long as I'm on the subject but above all my brethren do not swear that doesn't mean don't say bad words I'm not advocating saying (laughs) bad words but it's not what it means Do not make an oath is what this means. My brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Somebody look up Matthew 5.37 because everything James has written there is straight from the mouth of Jesus. So he in talking about the poor and the rich and the coming back of Christ and the patience of Job, suddenly just says, oh yeah, and above all, and he turns to a couple of imperatives that Jesus lays out. Who's got Matthew 5.37? Meg, stand up and read. you got to read loud. But
1: let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one.
0: James says, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. He got that right directly from Jesus. The first part, do not swear an oath, comes right from Matthew 5, starting at verse 33. Jesus says, again you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statements be, yes, yes, and no, no, anything beyond these is of the evil one. So it's all directly from the mouth of Jesus Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. What does that tell you? Be trustworthy. If you say you're going to do it, do it. If you say yes to something, make it yes. But don't feel the necessity to make oaths on things that don't belong to you. I swear by heaven. Really? You own heaven? What if you don't do it? Do they get to own heaven now because you swore by heaven? No, he says, don't swear by things that don't belong to you. Recognize that not even your own head belongs to you. You can't make one hair on your head black or white, or grow. You can't do anything about your head because your head doesn't belong to you. So don't even swear by your own head, by your own life. Instead, just be a trustworthy person. If you say yes, it's yes. If you say no, it's no. Don't you like to deal with trustworthy people? If someone tells you they're going to do it, you know they're going to do it. Uh, I'll pick on Tom again. Because he says to me all the time, I got it, I'll do it. And at the moment I hear him say it, I stop worrying about it, whatever it was. Whatever it was. The minute he says, yeah, I got it, I'll do it. I'm like, and that's done. I know he's got it. That's a yes, yes kind of guy. Don't you hate people who say yes when they mean no? Yes is yes, no is no, be trustworthy. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, They will be forgiven him. That's where we're going to start next week. Because, man, a whole lot of bad theology has come from that verse. (laughs) So we got to talk about it, and it'll take a while to talk about it. So we will start there next week, which means next week we will finish the book of James. Pardon me? God willing. God willing. (laughs) God willing. Next week we will finish the book of James. If you have a preference for what to go after next, let me know. I've just about preached through every book in the New Testament. The only ones that are kind of dangling out there are 1 and 2 Peter and Jude. In men's group, we've been through 1 and 2 Peter. But I may preach through them anyway, just to kind of have them on the website. And if at any point I get confused about 1 and 2 Peter, I've got Micah here to tag team with. (laughs) So that's really, really helpful. I also think at this moment, I've kind of got you in that first century Hebrew mindset. And you kind of understand the divisions in the church, the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And since Peter is writing to the same crowd, he identifies that he's writing to the diaspora, the same people James is writing to. Well, then this might be a good time to go ahead and address the Petrine epistles, Because we're kind of in that mindset anyway. And we'll just tie Jude into all that. Because they go together. Jude is also writing to the same group of people. So that might be where we're going. If you have a better suggestion, let me know. At some point before I die, God willing, I want to go back and preach through the book of Romans again. But then then I got usurped by Micah. And the men's group is doing Romans now.
1: We'll
0: do it twice. So... So we'll see what God's got planned. But next week, we hope to uh, finish the book of James. All right? Any questions? If you come away with nothing else, just recognize, again, the balance, the biblical balance to these things. Yes, sir?
2: I have a question, uh, uh, an example slightly different from what James 5 says. Let's say a worker is hired by an employer and they agreed upon a wage. Both sides agree. The worker works for the season and gets paid in full and walks on his way. And as a result of the efforts by the worker who got paid in full, the employer is now in luxury. (coughs) Is the employer in any way evil? Because you can line up people in America that will say he is. And is the worker a victim? after being paid in full to his agreed-upon
0: wage? I would end up saying no, and I can give you a biblical example. Jesus gave the parable of the people who were hired at the beginning of the day, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day, and then when he paid them all the same amount, and the ones who got there early complained, he said, can't I do what I want with what's mine? And so if the employer hires somebody, they agree, the employee works, gets paid and leaves... That deal was on the up and up. Nobody got oppressed in that deal. Right?
2: Well, I agree, but anyone watching the news today can see, like I said, you can line up tens of millions of Americans that believe differently.
0: I think it's just not fair that employers have more than employees.
2: They worship at the altar of fair.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Probably the reason why (laughs) is because they're watching the news. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some people are just born with more than others. Some people are born in, in the middle of poor Africa, and some people are born in Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, that's not fair, but it's the way it is.
0: It's also under the hand of a sovereign God. Yeah, yep. Who's in charge of that?
1: And, and I think to that point, that shows our covetous nature, you know. Yes. Jim has more than me, so I covet what he has, and James talks about that too. You, you want what you don't have, so you fight and... Backbite one another, and that's what class envy is. It's despising someone because they have something you don't
0: have. Right. And I will point out, since you used that example, that you have a boat and I don't. Okay? (laughs) I will point that out.
1: Well, uh, you're welcome to come help me fix the engine.
0: I mean, I don't want a boat. That's my point. $10,0
2: $2,000 engine repair bill.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, Dwayne.
2: A friend of mine was criticizing the book of Job, saying that if a person had done that, we would think they were sick and deranged. For instance, if a doctor had poisoned the person, left them near death, and come at the end to save him, to say that he was the hero, we would think they were sick and deranged. But when God does it,
0: how do you respond to that? Real easily. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. If you're going to compare God to some human job like a doctor or a weatherman or a prognosticator or something like that, you've already created a false dilemma because you're comparing God to something he can't be compared to. God is incomparable. God is beyond understanding God has revealed to us what he has chosen to reveal to us. And to put him on trial for being how he is only results in him in his sovereignty judging us for trying to judge him. So I don't allow people to put God on trial. As soon as they come up with examples like that, I know that they've already lost the argument because they've created a, a fake argument. And, and, and,
2: and, uh, <coughs>
0: Say it again. And in the end? And
2: in the end, after you've discussed epistemology for 10 days, what do you have? What you
0: have? Well, I think if the person is willing to discuss epistemology with you, then you're probably going to come to some kind of understanding together. That's the whole point of epistemological arguments. But I have found that people who are willing to make arguments like that don't really want an answer they're just justifying their unbelief. And then they're blaming God because they don't like the way God is or how he acts, so they blame God for their own unbelief.
2: And they've never thought epistemologically fully.
0: Right, exactly. They've never thought it through. Nor have they ever genuinely feared the Lord God. If they think that they can treat him with such judgmental examples... Then they have never come to a real understanding of who it is they're dealing with. So in
2: the bottom line, it's like uh, they're right. Yes, if a human being did it, it would be despicable. But if
0: God does it, that's God. Yeah, but if a human being did it, it would be done by a sinner. Right. Whereas if God does it, it's the holy God doing it, right. the creator, the one who owns everything, who can do whatever he wants with what's his. He's the potter, we're the clay. The Bible is full of those examples. We have to acquiesce to the fact that he, as the sovereign potter, can do whatever he wants with the clay. And to compare him to the clay is is foolish. Make sense? Any other questions?
1: I just had a comment. You're talking about God being balanced. I think it was A.W. Pink that said God is holy because he is W-H-O-L-E. In every way.
2: And I always like to think
0: about that. Yeah. He's in it all. Mm -hmm. And it's a holy God who cares about you who's in it all. Mm -hmm. And that's good to remember. I think sometimes, and part of the reason this has been on my mind, is that the last few weeks, I have been observing a sort of uptick in people who are advancing the lack of balance who are emphasizing one aspect of God and one aspect of proper theology, sound doctrine, and they're making it all about that. It's not all about that. It's about that and the stuff that balances it, like the love of God and the emotion of God and the mercy of God and the simplicity of the gospel message. There's balance to be had, and that's why it's kind of in my head right now
1: you were talking about judgment of God that you all have been reading about in Ezekiel (coughs) but when you read in the Old Testament how patient God was with all of those evil kings
0: and Israel long suffering we only think oh he finally poured out judgment what a mean God but we don't think about the thousands of years in some instances of just long suffering and patience We're seeing it right now. We're seeing a world that is God-hating and demented, and God is being patient. If God were just, he'd have already poured out endless judgment on this planet. But he's long-suffering and kind and gracious, too. We need to remember that. Anything else? We're done? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye!